Hello and welcome to GHE Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain at GHE Ministries, and I'm glad to have you with us. Be sure to follow this podcast to receive notifications every time there's a new podcast. Now, we are studying the book of Luke, and we are working our way through chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the fifth chapter of Luke, and we'll begin with verse 31. Let's get into it. Now, when we left off last time, we had almost finished with chapter 5, where we saw Jesus eating with a tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi, who later will be named Matthew and is also the writer of the first gospel of Matthew, throws a banquet for Christ, and he invites many friends of his and the disciples to hear and see this man called Jesus. And we also saw how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were not happy with Jesus and tries to find fault with him. In fact, they criticized Jesus for eating with these people who were considered undesirable people. But they're not ready to argue with Jesus yet. So they question his disciples of how Jesus can associate with these kinds of people. And now we are ready to hear Jesus's response. So in verse 31, let's go ahead and begin to read. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now I want to stop there real quick and finish off this section before we start another one and address verses 31 and 32 that we just read. Now Jesus answered that his action was in perfect accord with his purpose in coming into the world. Healthy people do not need a doctor. The only ones that need a doctor are those who are sick. Now, the Pharisees considered themselves to be righteous. They had no deep sense of sin or of need. Therefore, they could not benefit from the ministry of this great physician, Jesus Christ. But these tax collectors and sinners realized that they were sinners and that they needed to be saved from their sins. And it was for people like them that our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ came. Now, actually, the Pharisees were not righteous. They needed to be saved just as much as these tax collectors, but they were unwilling to confess their sins and to acknowledge their guilt. And so they criticized the doctor, if you will, Jesus Christ, for going to people who were seriously ill. Now, Jesus not only originated certain proverbs and parables, but also made wide use of the current ones. So, citing a self-evident proverb of his day, he described his mission in terms that he would go on to amplify in the parables in chapter 15. Now, since no one is truly righteous, Jesus used the world here either in a relative sense or with a touch of sarcasm. And Jesus implies that the Pharisees only thought that they were righteous. His point is that they must first acknowledge themselves to be sinners before they can truly respond to the call of repentance. With this word, Luke introduces a topic of major importance. While the gospel of grace and forgiveness is for everyone, 
repentance is a prerequisite to its reception. There has to be repentance first. And that's going to end us up with that section. And we'll start beginning verse 33. Now, the question about fasting and the non-fasting of Jesus' disciples is going to be explained. That's what this next section is going to be about. Levi's banquet leads to further questions about religious practices, particularly fasting and prayer. These practices were considered significant indications of religious devotion. Fasting was actually only prescribed for one day in the year, but was practiced as a religious exercise at least twice a week by the Pharisees. In contrast to the two previous incidences, this time the leaders challenged Jesus directly. So let's get into it. Turn with me to verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now taking a look at verses 33 through 35, we have the next tactic of the Pharisees, and this was to interrogate Jesus on the custom of fasting. After all, the disciples of John the Baptist, that's who is being referred to when they say John, he followed the ascetic life of their master. And the followers of the Pharisees observed various ceremonial fasts, but Jesus' disciples did not. Why not? Well, the Lord answered in effect that there was no reason for his disciples to fast while he was still with them. Here he associates fasting with sorrow and mourning. When he would be taken away from them, that is, violently in death, they would fast as an expression of their grief. By stating a fact about the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, the disciples are now criticized, not only for eating with sinners, for having a lifestyle that is in contrast to proper religious decorum, and Jesus' answer is indeed remarkable. The first part of the saying is clear. Jesus compares the situation to a wedding which naturally calls for joy. But to think that a death is highly unusual. Now Jesus seems to anticipate already here his rejection and his death at the hands of his enemies. So now we have three parables on the new dispensation. Dispensation is the action of a competent authority, which here is Jesus, in granting relief from the strict application of a law. So in verse 36, the three parables follow, which teach that a new dispensation has begun, and there could be no mixing of the new and of the old. Now the first parable 
The old garment speaks of the legal system or dispensation, while the new garment pictures the era of grace. They are incompatible. An attempt to mix law and grace results in a spoiling of them both. A patch taken from a new garment spoils the new one, and it does not match the old one, either in appearance or strength. So the context provides opportunity for Jesus to state a basic principle in a series of parabolic figures. His mission involves a radical break with common religious practices. He teaches that he has not come merely to add devotional routines to those already practiced, for what he brings is not a patch but a whole new garment. Merely to patch things up, to have a dinner celebration, if place of fasting would fail for two reasons. The first one is it would ruin the rest of the new garment from which it is taken. The second one is just as one new patch will not help preserve the old garment, but will in fact be conspicuously out of place. Now, Jesus would do no such things as tack on Christianity to Judaism. Flesh and law go together, but grace and law do not. Now, God's righteousness and man's will never mix. So this leads us into verse 37. I'm going to look at these last verses together, 37 through 39, before we begin chapter 6. The second illustration suggests that Jesus' teaching is like fermenting wine, wine that seems to have almost inherent vigor, and it cannot be contained with an old rigid system, just as wine cannot be contained in old wineskins because it has lost its elasticity. The second parable teaches the folly of putting new wine into old wineskins. The fermenting action of new wine causes pressure on the skins. And these old skins are no longer pliable or elastic to bear all this pressure of the new wine. So the skins burst and the wine spills out. The outmoded forms, the ordinances, traditions, and the rituals of Judaism were too rigid to hold the joy, the exuberance, and the energy of the new dispensation. The new wine is seen in this chapter in the unconventional methods of the four men who brought the paralytic to Jesus. It is seen in the freshness and the zeal of Levi. The old skins, the old wineskins, picture the dryness and the cold formalism of the Pharisees. Now, the third parable states that no one, having drunk old wine, prefers new. He says, the old is better. This pictures the natural reluctance of men to abandon the old for the new. Judaism for Christianity, the law for grace, shadows for substance. Jesus concludes by emphasizing that people tend to want the old and to reject the new, assuming, wrongly in this case, that the old is better. A man accustomed to forms, human arrangements, fathers, religion, etc., never likes the new principle and the power of the kingdom. And with that, we close chapter 5, and we start to look into chapter 6. The uneasy tension between Jesus and the Pharisees that was described in chapter 5, it hardens into controversy over one of the main institutions of Judaism, which is the Sabbath. 
Keeping the Sabbath provided an appropriate issue for debate because, number one, it had roots both in the creation account and in the Ten Commandments. Secondly, it involved every seventh day and consequently called for many decisions about what was permitted or forbidden on that particular day. And then thirdly, it afforded a public disclosure of one's observance or non-observance of the day. So, beginning with chapter 6, we're going to have the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath, and we're going to get into the Sabbath controversy. So, turn with me to chapter 1, and let's begin. Now, it happened on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of the grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, and he and those were with him? How he went to the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Two incidences concerning the Sabbath are now brought before us to show that the mounting opposition of the religious leaders is now reaching a climax. The first occurred on the second first Sabbath, literal translation. This is explained as follows. The first Sabbath was the first one after the Passover. The second was the next after that. Now Luke centers attention on the disciples, though in accordance with custom, their teacher was held responsible. On the second Sabbath after the first, the Lord and disciples walked through some grain, free, grain fields. The disciples plucked some grain, they rubbed the kernels in their hands, and ate them. Now the Pharisees could not quarrel about the fact of the grain being taken. Now this was permitted by the law. The criticism was that it was done on the Sabbath. Now, they sometimes called the plucking of a grain a harvesting operation, and the rubbing of the grain was considered a threshing operation. Therefore, they deemed that work was being done on the Sabbath. So to glean by hand in someone's field was permitted by law. Uh, to glean means to gather up the, the grain in the corn. That was given to us by law in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. But to do this and to rub the heads of the grain, that was considered threshing. And Jewish tradition forbade threshing on the Sabbath because that was considered work. So in verse 3, Jesus' response in centers in an analogy from Scripture. He is referring to 1 Samuel chapter 21, when he calls to mind an instance in which the infringement of a rule to meet human need received no condemnation. Now, the Lord's answer using an incident from the life of David was that the law of the Sabbath was never intended to forbid a work of necessity. Rejected and pursued, David and his men were hungry. Now they went into the house of God and they ate the showbread, which ordinarily that was reserved for the priests. God made an exception in David's case. There was sin in Israel. 
the king was rejected. Now, the law concerning the showbread was never intended to be so slavish, uh, to be slavishly followed as to permit God's king to starve. Now, here was a similar situation. Christ and disciples were hungry. Now, the Pharisees would rather see them starve than to pick wheat on the Sabbath. But the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He gave the law in the first place, and no one was better qualified than Jesus to interpret it, and interpret its true spiritual meaning, and to save it from misunderstanding by others. And note, too, that the scriptural analogy and the present incident involved a Davidic figure and his companions. We had David and his companions in the first one. Now we have Jesus, who is from the, the David line, and his companions, his disciples. The point that ceremonial rites must give way to a higher moral law. That is the important thing to note. Now, with that, we are running short on time, but next time we'll start getting into where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, another Sabbath violation, if you will, considered by the Pharisees, and what the Pharisees think about that and Jesus' response to that as well. So join me next time when we do tackle that healing on the Sabbath. Until then, God bless each and every one of you. Keep living Christian strong.